0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Joe Collins, and uh, it is great to be together this morning. I want to welcome all the high school and junior high kids. I'm glad to have you in the service with us this morning. It's nice to see your lovely faces. Of course, want to welcome everyone else here. Uh, happy to have you out worshiping with us uh, this morning. Uh, you know, uh, I have a, a short little joke. It's not a very funny joke, unfortunately, but I'm going to try. But... Uh, it's all in the deliverance. That's right. So, uh, what was it that uh, you know? You know, what did Tarzan say to Jane when he saw a herd of elephants stampeding toward them? He said, "Look, a herd of elephants stampeding towards us." So, like I said, it wasn't a very funny joke, but it does tie into our series entitled The Elephant in the Room. See, because like Tarzan, the elephant in the room is the obvious thing that's going unsaid. And that's what we've been doing in our series. We've been talking about things that just sort of go unsaid. We started off and we talked about uh, the, the, the kitchen, I think, was our first room. And we talked about pop culture, how it just wants to force feed us. Then we went into the bedroom, and we talked about the whole coexist and tolerance movement, how, how somehow that's just, you know, it's bad to think other than that. And then we went into the home office, and we discovered that the church, the greatest thing that God did in human history, the, the birth of the church, goes unsaid. It just is, sort of blends into the background. It gets forgotten about. Well, today... As you can tell, we, we have a little uh, setup here, a little uh, props that we've been doing each week. And, and I, I, I'm, I know you're wondering what these are. I know you're wondering, what room is this? Well, we're going to kind of wrap up our series today. We may revisit it another time. But, but to wrap up our series, what we're going to be talking about today is the man cave. Wow. See? Now, of course, if it was my man cave, there'd be more weights there, uh, you know, um, you know, at least heavier weights. I like to say that. But you know, the man cave, also known as a man space or a mantuary, is any space inside or out that is exclusively designed, furnished, and styled by a man. While the term man cave hasn't been around all that long, man caves have. Medieval castles had rooms used by the resident Lord that were furnished with bookshelves, with art, and the Lord's most prized possessions. In the early 1900s, Americans and European hunters brought home their trophy kills and proudly displayed them in what could easily be called the first man caves of the 20th century. Today, men all over the world build and use man caves as a way to kick back, to relax, and sort of escape the pressure of of life. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to pray before we read. Father, we ask you to come with us today and meet with us here. Thank you for our worship time and to be brought closer to you through prayer and through the reading of your word and through singing. And now, God, we want to be ministered to by your Holy Spirit through your holy and perfect word minister to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to read Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 to start. And you may have noticed that our series, Elephant in the Room, has sort of followed Daniel chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so uh, we're going to close out here in Daniel 3. It says in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image (coughs) that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now to get the most out of this story, there's a couple of things we've got to believe, we've got to accept. First, we've got to accept that Daniel was real. We've talked about this throughout the series. There are those that question the authenticity of Daniel. Was he a real figure or not? And, and, and all of their, their questions are based on, on, the, on belief that he couldn't have known what he knew when he knew it. That's their only argument. But history tells us that there was a Daniel. He did exist. The Bible's very clear that this was a real person. He was a real historical figure, and he lived at the time that, that these, that, of the events that he recorded, around 600 to 530 B.C. The second thing is that the events that Daniel recorded in his book really did happen. <coughs> Even the miraculous events. And then thirdly... <coughs> those events had historical relevance they, they, they really meant something when they occurred if we want to really get into this text into our study of, of God's Word we have to accept those basic premises otherwise we're just talking about myth and fantasy and what does it matter nothing so these are real events of real people with real historical significance now the story we pick up Has to do with Nebuchadnezzar, and one day he decides to add a great trophy into his man space, a giant statue made of gold, some hundred feet high in our terms. A cubit was about twenty inches, and about ten feet wide. This is a huge statue, and he sets it up out in the plain of Dura, and he commands that all of his thank you that all of his uh, uh, governors and and uh, governmental officials. Uh, and musicians, and, and probably everybody living in the city of Babylon at the time, he commands all of them to come out to the plain of Dura to be assembled and to uh, have a, a massive dedication ceremony to this statue. Mm. Now, it's interesting because if, you are, are, if you've been a part of our series up to today, uh, you'll know that a couple weeks back we talked about a dream that this same king had, King Nebuchadnezzar had, and, and he couldn't get the dream interpreted, and so he asked his advisors to interpret the dream, but they not only had to interpret it, they had to know the dream, he wouldn't tell them what it was, and then they had to interpret it. And only Daniel could, was, was capable, because of his belief in God, uh, to, to tell the king his dream and to interpret it for him. And, and the dream was very significant. It, the, at the basic point of the dream, if, if you really want to get gut level honest, was that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that big of a deal. That, you know, God showed a, a statue of various uh, metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and clay, and, and, he, and he basically said that, you know, your, your kingdom is the gold one, and there'll be one that follows you that's silver, and so on. And, and his point there was that at some point in the future in history, God's going to establish his kingdom, and it's going to smash all other kingdoms. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, I know you think you're all that, but you're not really all that. You're not really that big of a deal. Now, Daniel wants us to know that, that Daniel chapter 3 follows Daniel chapter 2, that, that, that this event occurred sometime after that dream and the, and the miraculous reinterpretation of the dream and, and the revelation of the meaning of the dream. And, and, and what we learn is, I don't know how long the, the time was between the, that event of the dream and this event where Nebuchadnezzar builds his statue. I don't know how much time it passed, but guess what? Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar forgot or, or, or didn't get the point of the dream. How quickly people forget when God moves in a powerful way in their life. I am no different. It's easy to point the finger at Nebuchadnezzar, but I am no different. God has worked in my life in different ways, and, and it could be hours later. I'm off doing something stupid again. How quickly we forget when God does something in our lives. So Nebuchadnezzar is out in his man cave there. He's got this awesome image, which Daniel doesn't really describe. He just says it's an image. He doesn't talk about what it is. Some people say maybe it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Most people think it was actually an image of the god of the Babylonians, Nebu. And and that's probably what it was. But the point is, he builds this big old image, and then he commands that all officials in his government Uh, assemble around the image and probably all the residents in the local area assemble around the image. And when they hear the sound of all these different musical instruments, they are to bow down and worship at this image. And those who refused would be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, I want you in your mind's eye for a minute to just imagine the scene. I don't know exactly where Nebuchadnezzar and his court sat, but he w- maybe he was somewhere near the image, or maybe he was on a higher plateau somewhere, but he was in a, a, a point where he could see everyone. And, and he wanted to see all these peoples that he had conquered, that his empire had defeated, and, he, and, and, and all their captives that were now employed in his government, and he probably had them dress in their customary clothes and and that's probably why daniel mentions that again and again that he pulled all these provincial leaders from all over the place had them segregated into their their various uh categories and groups dressed in their traditional outfits and their traditional dress and then he had all these different musical instruments probably different instruments that were played by these different cultures it was this great multicultural event that nebuchadnezzar was putting on i mean who would have thought multiculturalism didn't start in the 1970s in the United States, it goes all the way back to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the first multicultural guy. He wanted everyone. He wanted them all there, all the different cultures, all the different traditions, and all their clothes, and all their music. And, 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 and the goal was that when they hear the music, everyone bow before this giant image that he had constructed. This was really a very egotistical Moved by Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted everyone to acknowledge his authority over them, his rule over them, and then he wanted everyone to bow to his God and submit themselves to to serving his God. They could keep their gods, but they had to add his God. Now, never mind the fact that there was a fiery furnace off in the distance, burning, so that if anyone didn't bow, there was a threat of being thrown into the furnace. Now, had things gone according to plan, this would have been a spectacular scene. It would have been amazing, but it didn't. Let's read on. Verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty had issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, Zither, lyre, harp, and pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and then, whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Your majesty, they never serve your gods nor, nor worship the image of gold you have set up. <coughs> Furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made up, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? just right. He's got everybody there. The scene, the ceremony's ready. My, my personal opinion, I've read this a bunch, and my personal opinion is this was a, a rehearsal. This was a dress rehearsal. He got everybody there, and they were going to practice it a few times, get everybody on the same page, make everything go just right before the cameras turned on and they filmed the whole thing, right? That was the idea here, I think. And so during the rehearsal, the music blares, everything happens, everybody, everybody bows down, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's probably far enough away where he can just see the hundreds, the thousands of people all splayed out in front of him. He probably couldn't see any individual people. But, but, or if he could, he'd have to be focusing on that area. But, but there he was watching this whole scene, it's amazing. And then, okay, great, you know, everybody's applauding, clapping, great job, great job, okay, we're ready for the dedication, six o'clock, yeah, we're on, six o'clock, that's great. And then here comes the astrologers. Now just astrology, just run away from astrologers. They never have any good news. But here they come, those darn astrologers. And they come in ratting out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are finks. That's what these guys are. They're ratting them out. And they say, Oh king, you know, you did all this, you commanded all this, and these three guys won't bow down when the music plays. And and King Nebuchadnezzar's he's pretty upset. Now, again, in our series, we learned that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were friends of Daniel, and they were taken into captivity with Daniel when, Jerusalem was defeated by, when the kingdom of Jerusalem was defeated by, by Nebuchadnezzar. He took them and several, many other people into captivity, and he pressed them into service. And so he actually knew who they were. He had an interaction with them early on when they were first taken, and they turned out to be better advisors than just about anyone else he had. And so he knew who these guys were. And, and you know they were off doing their job. Um, and then in, in, in chapter 2, when he has his dream, and he talks to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are also there, and they're the ones that help Daniel pray, so that Daniel can get the interpretation of the dream. And then they all get promoted. And so these guys weren't unfamiliar to, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and history tells us, this is kind of neat, that, that you know, archaeologists have discovered you know, uh, historical artifacts and writings, and they discovered that one of the things King Nebuchadnezzar was known for was he really cared about justice, which is an interesting thing. His justice may not have looked like our justice, but he cared about it. And you can see that coming out in the story. He personally went to these guys to personally interview them. He wasn't just going to take the words of some... Uh, critical astrologers. So there he goes. He interviews them to find out, is this what's really going on? I mean, you're ruining the rehearsal. Come on, guys. What are you doing? So he's angry. He interviews them. And they give one of the best answers ever recorded in the Bible. Honestly, it's legendary. Even ever recorded in the history of, of the world that I can think of. I want to talk for a minute before we get into that about the astrologers. Who were they? Well, the Bible in in the original language uses this word astrologers and this word Chaldeans kind of interchangeably. Chaldeans were native Babylonians. That's what they were. They were Chaldeans. And the fact that these three Jewish teenagers, when they were taken into captivity in Babylon, became members of this class of people, the Chaldeans or the astrologers, Was probably offensive right away to the to the native Chaldeans, the native-born astrologers. So don't don't be fooled here. There's a bit of racism going on between this group of people. You can even look in their language. You know, he said they denounced the Jews, and then they even complained that you set them over us. It was really offensive to them that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been put to a higher position than they had been, and they were foreigners. What were you thinking? I think another element that may have gone on here was that these guys were obviously envious of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got the better job. Not only were they Jews, not Chaldeans, but they got the better position. They got the higher position of authority. Whatever the case may be, this group of people were hostile towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's an important lesson for every one of us from junior high to high school to everyday life, that that people outside of the family of God are hostile. They may not show it. We may get along with a lot of people, but at some fundamental level, there is a hostility between people of faith and people not of faith. The worldly are not our friends. And and, and the sooner you learn this lesson, whether it's in junior high school or high school, or whether it's in your everyday life, the better. Now that doesn't mean we become defensive and we become hostile back. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is fundamentally a difference between people of faith and people not of faith. We can look at what's going on in the Middle East to bring this to current times. I'm gonna be relevant here. And, and we could say, oh, it's, it's because of this policy or this politician or this... No, it's not. It is a fundamental argument, a difference of opinion between faiths. There is a hostility that exists. Maybe it goes back to the fact that God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his offspring to be his chosen people. And maybe other people feel left out. Maybe they feel like that's, that's exclusive. Or maybe they feel like that's uh, 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 you know, wrong of God to have done that. I don't know. But I do know that there is a fundamental difference. And, and who you decide to influence you, who you let influence you, your friends, will have a significant impact on you. And so it's always wise, if you want to be a person of faith, to make sure that your key relationships are people who are like-minded, who, have, who share your faith. Because the, the fact of the matter is, there is an underlying hostility that, that just exists. And again, it's from them towards us. It's not from us towards them. And if we do have it, then we are condemned by our own faith. Right. Because we're called to love unconditionally. The Jews were called to be a light to the world. We as Christians are called to be a light to the people around us. Right. So there's no room for us to be hostile back. Mom, you, but we can't ignore the fact that there, that there is hostility out there yeah. because of our fundamental differences. So we get back to the story. And Nebuchadnezzar at this point is furious because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down. He interviews them, he gives them a second chance, and they respond by basically saying, we will not bow. So right there in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's man cave with all of his Babylonian and other advisors around watching this scene, these three Hebrew men who were teenagers when he first took them into captivity refuse to honor his request. you got to remember, these are Jews. King Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the Jews a few years earlier. He had destroyed their city. He had defeated their, their, their people. He had destroyed their temple. He had dispersed all of the, all of the, uh, the citizens of, of Jerusalem. And now three of their teenagers have the gall to be defiant and stand in front of him and refuse to bow down at his command. This brings us to the elephant that we're going to find in the man cave. Compromise. Everything in the story screams compromise. Come on, Shadrach, Meshach, what are you guys, are you guys doing? You're totally bumming everybody out. This is not that big of a deal. Nobody even knows. You don't have to do this in your heart. Just bow down. What does it matter? You can believe what you... He's not saying you can't worship your God. He's just saying you've got to acknowledge this God. Can't you be more open-minded? Can't you be more tolerant? Can't you be more diverse in your views? Why are you so narrow? No compromise. Everything in our environment, in the world we live in as believers, pushes us towards compromise. And that is a big, fat elephant in the middle of the room that we don't talk about a whole lot. But the truth of the matter is, we are being pushed to compromise. You, whatever media you take in, music, m- movies, television, it's all pushing you to compromise. Whatever you learn, even in your education, even, even, it's mixed in with good stuff too, I'm not saying it's not. But there's, 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 a, there's a push in even our education system to compromise. Right. Yep. Look, I mean, come on, everybody thinks this. What are you thinking that for? That's just silly. Yep. That's the elephant in the room. And that's the elephant that, that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego uh, uh, highlighted by the fact that they wouldn't compromise. Right. Remember in chapter one, if you were here for that, Daniel was there. For whatever reason, he's not present in this story. He must have heard about it later. And then recorded it. But Daniel was there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the, when the first attempt at compromise occurred, when they tried to get them to eat non-kosher food, non, food that was considered unclean. And they refused. They wouldn't compromise, and they found out, a, they, they mediated a better solution, and everything worked out great. Well, here we are again. It's just another, you know, hey, okay, great, we did that for you. Come on, meet us halfway. Just do this, no big deal. But these guys wouldn't compromise. And remember, they wouldn't compromise on things that mattered to their faith. And that's the key. Our part, if we're going to live in Babylon, which we do as Christians, we live in a a modern day Babylon, a a culture that that is not friendly or conducive to our faith in a lot of ways. Some ways it is and some ways it isn't. But if we're going to live in that culture, we're going to have to know exactly what we can compromise on and exactly what we can't compromise on. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were very wise, even though they were very young, and they knew that, okay, if they were going to be trained in, in Babylonian culture and even learn about the Babylonian religion and speak the Babylonian language and dress like Babylonians and have their names changed, that was all fine. But because none of that compromised their core convictions, their core values of their faith. But whenever they ran into a position where they were being challenged to compromise something that mattered to their faith, they objected. And now they did it very peaceably. Daniel in chapter 1 negotiated out with his handler and and they got their, their diet changed and everything was good. Here in, 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 in Gen, Daniel chapter 3, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't arguing that they, that they deserve the, the punishment. They're not, they're not saying, please don't punish us, or they're not saying you're a jerk. They're not, they're not pushing back. They, they called him king, and you know, we appreciate everything, and we're not here to defend ourselves. If, if we're going to be punished, then we're going to be punished. We're just not going to compromise. That's a powerful testimony to you and I. That's a powerful statement to us that we can actually live in Babylon. In, in a less than ideal circumstance, and we can still hold to our core values, our core beliefs, and not compromise. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be consequences, but it doesn't mean we have to compromise. So Nebuchadnezzar, probably embarrassed, uh, uh, you know, is, is angry here. But let's not forget the incredible testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their willingness... Their unwillingness to compromise in their faith. That testimony was recorded by Daniel in his writing in Aramaic, which was the common language of the empire of Babylon. And and relatively quickly, those stories spread through the empire. And word got out to other Jews, to other Hebrews who were in captivity in other places, and they heard the stories. And it gave them hope. It gave them uh, encouragement. It encouraged them to not compromise because they may have been out in a province somewhere. They may have been placed somewhere off where they were just working in fields, but word would get back. News traveled. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego became an incredible testimony, not only to the Hebrew people, to the world, to the other Babylonians, but also in history, to us as well, of men who wouldn't compromise, even in the face of incredible intensity. You ever wonder why Daniel repeats it over and over and over? The precepts, the advisors, and then the harp, the zither, lary. Like he says that over and, because he's trying to show, build the intensity. He's trying to. It's for effect. Look at how much they had to deal with, and that was a great testimony. It's a great testimony to us. And, and here's the elephant for us. And this is the point of the message. If you hear nothing else, hear this: faith that is not practice cannot. preached that's the point of the whole message that's the elephant in our room today faith that is not practiced cannot be preached in my life I claimed to be a Christian for many many years yet I struggled to read my Bible in any meaningful or consistent way I struggled to pray in any meaningful or consistent way. I struggled to go to church in any meaningful or consistent way. I would be out doing my thing on Saturday night and saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but my life did not match up to my faith. And therefore, my life could not be preached. I was not a good testimony to anyone around me. I was a Christian in name only, but not in practice. And there came a point in time where I almost completely quit. Actually, I did. I I had a moment where I said, look, why am I doing this? There's no point in calling myself a Christian, yet not living like one in any meaningful way. There was no distinction between me and anyone else. Trust me, at that time in my life, had I been in Babylon, I would have bowed. And I would have told myself, "No big deal. I'm, I'm not doing it in my heart. I'm just for just everybody you know, look, just want to get along. Don't anybody see me? I wouldn't have stood out. Wow. And then there came a point at that time when someone invited me to church and I started studying the Bible, and I, I got around a fellowship like this one here, of people who actually were practicing it. They weren't perfect. trust me, they weren't perfect. But there was clearly a difference. In the way that they practiced their faith, in the way that I had ever practiced my faith, mm-hmm. it was clearly different. And that was a message to me. Yeah. No sermon could beat that. Right. There were lots of good sermons, but it was their practice right. that convinced me. Mm-hmm. And I jumped in. Yeah. And if you're visiting today or if you've been coming around our fellowship, I gotta believe you see a difference. And in and and, and that story could be your story. Jump in. Be a part of the faith. And your life will preach. And it will preach to the people around you, and it will preach to your kids, and it will preach to other people down the road. A faith that is not practiced cannot be preached. Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. <coughs> He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the God most high, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. You can almost see the redness in Nebuchadnezzar's face as he got so angry. Tie, get the strongest guys and tie these guys. I'm so mad at these guys. I can't, tie them up. Get them up there. Turn the fire up higher. You know, get The whole thing, just major fit of rage here. Has him dragged up and thrown into the furnace. It's so hot that even the guys that carry him up there are succumbed to the heat and when they, they land and somehow Nebuchadnezzar is in some position where he can see into the furnace which isn't uncommon. that They did build furnaces like that. These big, giant furnaces. They had an earthen ramp that went up. There was the, the, the smokestack or where the heat came out. And then, it, and then there were openings where you could smelt metal or whatever. And then there was other openings where you could start the fire and stuff like that. And these are large furnaces. And Nebuchadnezzar was far enough back where he wasn't burning himself. And he could see in there. And when they fell in there, he didn't see these guys burning alive. What he saw was these guys walking around like it was Sunday afternoon. And there was a fourth guy in there who looked unlike the other three. He looked pretty special, pretty unique. And Nebuchadnezzar was was shocked at this sight. And so he screams, Guys, come out! And they come out. Everybody gathers around and Nebuchadnezzar witnessed the full extent of a miracle from God. They weren't singed. Their hair wasn't singed. Their clothes weren't burnt. There wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. Have you ever eaten barbecue? For like days, you smell like barbecue afterwards. It's a wonderful cologne. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't even smell like barbecue. They come out. Everybody's amazed. They're standing around. Their deliverance couldn't have been more complete. The ropes were the only things that were no longer on them. You know, God doesn't have to keep us from getting burned, but getting burned doesn't have to keep us from God. Right. Yeah. I hear it awful, an awful lot. I hear, I hear it an awful lot. I, you know, I've been burned by religion. I've been burned before by, by people of faith. So does that have to keep you from God? We sometimes as Christians go through traumatic times. We go through some incredibly difficult times. We're so grateful that Glenn and Vicky are here with Taylor. Yeah. We prayed a lot for them. Their family went through a trial by file, fire. For those of you that don't know, Taylor had some serious health issues, got incredibly serious. There was lots of prayer. There was lots of weeping. There was lots of struggle. There was lots of pain. There was lots of hurt. God didn't save her from that or the near garters. He allowed that to happen. But that doesn't have to make them run away from God. And they're here with us today. Ethel and Anthony are going through a similar trial by fire. Their daughter, Jessica, had her first child. Major complications. I can't go into the details, but a couple nights ago, it was it was bad. It was, please God, save her life. Bad. She's now in the hospital recovering. And we're so grateful that God answered those prayers. But He didn't protect her from going through, or anyone else, from going through the fire. That's the amazing thing to me in the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace. God didn't save them from that. But it didn't have... To separate them from God in fact when we rightly understand difficult times and things that go that happen in our life that we can't understand that are so difficult or so painful or so hard when we rightly understand them what oftentimes happens is we come out better we come out more free and that's what happened with Shadrach Meshach and Abednego the only thing burned off them was, was the binds the ropes They came out better off. It's hard to see when they were going in that that's what was going to happen. But at the end of the day, they came out better off. You know, God doesn't always answer our prayers. Sometimes we lose people. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, could just have easily been killed in the furnace, and their story would be no less great because they still would have received deliverance. Maybe not on this earth, but in the earth to come. And so, however you slice it, hear this now: if you ever, when you when not if when, you get thrown into the furnace. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's not always going to be what we hope it to be. But I know this. It will be better. If not in this life, certainly in the next life. Amen. And so we, as, as believers in, in God, in the tradition of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in, in, the, in the same faith tradition as them, we have every reason to live our lives as free and unbound as, as, as it, we have more reason than anyone else right. to live our lives freely and unbound. Right. Because we have confidence that whatever the case may be, God is going to turn it out for our deliverance. Amen. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and he defied, he defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of well, rubble. I guess he, he didn't want to have the, the, the risk them throwing into a fire and walking out. So, cut them up this time. <laughs> and uh, uh, turn their, their houses into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar's big day didn't turn out as he planned, but it turned out as God planned. Amen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, actually ex- ex- were both executed and saved on the same day. <laughs> but but here's, the, here's the meaning of the story. And this is so important because remember we said these are real people, these were real events and they had real historical relevance. It wasn't just Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that were saved that day. It was all the Hebrew people because they had been conquered. They had been taken into captivity and they were fearing for their lives. Wherever they were scattered throughout Babylon, the the pressure to compromise was overwhelming. They were exposed they were vulnerable other other groups of people the, the native chaldeans or the or the other groups uh, groups people that had been that had been captured previously w- would, would easily have taken advantage of this group of people but god had nebuchadnezzar issue a decree protecting the hebrew people in babylon And so the the message to the people was that even through the most difficult of difficult times, God saves. He protects. He's watching out for you. He knows what's going on. Yes, we might lose some here and there, but on the whole, God is watching out for His people. And the ones we may lose along the way are going to be taken care of as well. In the new earth. And so God always saves. There was a legal decree in writing that set a precedent for the protection of the Hebrew people at a time when they were very vulnerable and very exposed and and at a real disadvantage. And so the real story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not what they did, but it's about what God did. And that's the thing we can't forget. It's so easy because we hear these stories from the time we we're little kids. And we love the stories. And we always get inspired. And we, and we, and we rightly so. We, we celebrate Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But sometimes hearing the stories over and over and over again, we forget that the real story is that God saves. Yep. You know, I started off and I was told that hilarious joke about Tarzan and Jane. <laughs> you know Tarzan stated the obvious well you know Shadrach Meshach and Abednego their story states the obvious they were saved because of their faith in God some 500 years later the story would be told again we're going to prepare ourselves for communion at this time and some 500 years later God would send another Savior The Hebrew people found themselves in captivity again, this time to the Romans, and they were vulnerable and they were exposed. But God brought a Savior much greater than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His name was Jesus Christ. And He faced His own furnace. It was a cross where He sacrificed His life on the cross so that people who put their faith in Him Could be saved. And so maybe we could end this whole story and and, and tie it into the communion and everything by saying this. Maybe the greatest elephant in the room in history that people aren't talking enough about, and we need to, is that Jesus saves. I can't think of a better way to end the series. Jesus saves. And if we put our faith in Him, He will deliver us right. here and there. And So when we take communion, it's our time to remember His death, His burial, His resurrection, His body and His blood that was shed on the cross for us so that we could be saved. Amen. And then our, our life, our faith could be practiced and shared with others. Let's go to God and pray and thank Him for His sacrifice. Father, we are so thankful for all that You've done for us. For sending Your Son Jesus to the cross.